All right, Matthew 6, if you would stand with me, and we'll continue our series here in the Lord's Prayer. In fact, this will be the last sermon from the Lord's Prayer tonight, and we'll kind of wrap things up. And I, what I'm going to do here is uh, I'll read the Lord's Prayer together, and then I want to take a few minutes and just review some of the things that we've studied and just freshen our minds around what we've read. And then we're going to conclude with the last sentence tonight, and we'll look at that and just ask the Lord to help us find application uh, this evening. All right? So let's read again. Um, in verse 7, and we'll read through verse 13. This is Jesus' instruction surrounding the prayer. He says, When you pray, use not vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you need of before you ask him. And so he says, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray tonight. Father, thank you for the chance to be together once more as a church family. We're grateful for tonight. Lord, I pray your blessing on the programs, our kids' programs, our youth programs, and then our service here. That you speak to our hearts and that we'd be better as a result of, of being here. Lord, we'd be honored if you'd help us and meet with us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we've studied the Lord's Prayer, we, of course, we found that each part of the prayer means something important to us. Um, this is a template for prayer. And so when Jesus says, after this manner, therefore pray ye, he is saying, I want you to pray this prayer. But right before that, he's saying, don't pray this prayer repetitiously, because he just said that. That's what the heathen do. This isn't about some repetitious prayer. This is a template for us. And he is saying, I want you to understand the format, the template I'm going to give you for prayer. And there's no other place that he says this. Uh, this is the model prayer for us. And so understanding this prayer. Um, and as I studied this, I have prayed, and, 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 and just transparency here, as I've asked the Lord to help me pray better, what I've been doing in my own prayer life every single day is praying, is thinking about the verse that, you know, that, that's here, you know, our Father which art in heaven, and then processing what that means, and then praying what that means to me in that moment, and how God's leading my heart and my mind. And so that's the intent here. That's the idea, that we would literally use this as a template in our prayer. Jesus taught this to His disciples. He fills this prayer with imperative verbs, and imperative verbs their action. They're asking the speaker or writer, they want us to do something. They have, they have something for us to do. And so this is like our task list for the day. Lord, I'm praying. I'm committing the day to you. This is the kind of person I need to be. These are the things I need to do. This is, who, this is what I need your help with. And at least as we proceed through our day, we might come back to these exact prayer requests once more. And we are literally asking God to help us become what we pray. And so when he says, um, our Father which art in heaven, he, this was a, an address that Jesus used to refer to God more than any other address. This was his Father. This wasn't just his God. This, this wasn't just, you know, his dad. He uses this term Father. It means steadfast, faithful, loving, kind, compassionate, merciful. And, and Jesus saying, he's my Father and he's yours too. And He is those things for us. And so as we come to the Lord, it's, it's, the, it's these terms of affection. We're not just coming to God and saying, okay, God, I need you with this today. It's, no, it's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's more affection. It's, this is an intimate, meaningful relationship that we have with God. And so as we come to Him, we say, Father. And we address Him that way. Loving, compassionate, steadfast. He is, is there for you. 
And then he says, which art in heaven? Where is our Father? And again, and this is my way of review, um, and we, we went, looked at this months ago, but when those two words are combined in Matthew, it's the plural for heaven, it's orenos, and it's distinct from the earth and the material world, and yet it, it envelops both. And so it's this idea which art in heaven, it's not just this idea that he is up there, and so he is distant from us. It's this idea that, uh, of heaven meaning, it's plural meaning, it encompasses like the heavens, it's everything around me. It's like what the psalmist prayed in Psalms 139, if I go to, you know, if I go to the depths of hell, God's there. If I go on the ocean and the depths of the ocean, he's there. If I go to the highest heights, he's there. Wherever I go, the Lord's with me. So this idea is this, our Father, Lord, my Father, compassionate, loving, steadfast, merciful today, which art in heaven, meaning this, he's with me. Wherever I am, my Father's with me. Wherever you are, your heavenly Father is there. If it's in your living room, if it's as you drive to work tomorrow morning, if it's as you're still in bed or in the shower or at your desk or on the job, your Father's with you. And so it's my Father which art in heaven. And then he says, hallowed be thy name. And to be hallowed or holy is to be set apart for God's purposes. And in this prayer, Jesus is teaching us that we are asking God to make his name hallowed. Well, how does God, who is already hallowed, make his own name hallowed? He makes it hallowed through you, through your actions, and through what you do throughout the course of the day. That's how he does it. And so when we pray, we, we pray something specific, and we pray our, our heart focuses on that object, and we invite God to work through us and others to answer that request. And so in this request, we're saying, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lord, through my actions, through my life, through the way that I think, through the way that I interact with other people, through the way that I treat my family, through the, 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 the decisions that I make today, Lord, may you be hallowed. May you be set apart. May others see you in, in your glory. Then he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The Pharisees asked Jesus, when's the kingdom coming? In Luke 17, he was demanded of the Pharisees. Brr, demand you. You know, this is, this is this aggressive interaction with him. When the kingdom of God should come. So when is it? You think you know everything? And so Jesus' response was this. The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. You don't see it. You don't look for it and go, oh, there it is. It's not like an earthly kingdom. Not yet. Neither shall they say, lo, here or lo, there, for behold, the kingdom of God. And then he says these words, it's within you. They didn't even know what they were looking for. They wanted to know when it was coming, but they didn't even know what it was. When is the kingdom of God? Well, it is now, and it is yet to come. Where is the kingdom of God? Well, today it's in your heart, and it has been. And so this is what Jesus' response was. And so when we pray and request that God's kingdom come, we are praying that God would be set up as the rightful ruler of our own hearts. If a king doesn't have a kingdom, he can't be a king. He can only be a sovereign over, over, over that which you rule. And so the request here is today, Lord, would you set up your kingdom and rule in my heart? Would you rule through me? And God, help me to establish your will and your purposes uh, uh, today. In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, it says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not something physical, but it's righteousness and it's peace and it's joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness, peace, joy. These things today, God, establish them in my heart 
And in Jesus in Matthew 6, later in the same sermon, would say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek that righteousness. Seek that peace. Seek that joy in your heart. Lord, establish those things in my heart today so that you can rule my heart outwardly. Then he says, give us this day our daily bread. Bread at its, at its base level is flour and water. But it's humbling to realize that God would care for our physical needs in such a way. And all throughout his earthly ministry, we see him caring for the physical, real, tangible needs, desires, and pleasures of other people. He thinks about our needs. He processes them. Processes them. He provides for them. He instructs us to ask him for them. But bread is not just flour and water. And here's this tension. When we ask God for our daily bread, we are asking for physical needs. Yes. But we are also asking for our spiritual needs to be met and fulfilled. And the Greek word for bread is artos, and it just means any kind of food. And, and the term bread represents things that we need to survive and thrive. And so that's true physically, but it's also true spiritually. Bread represents the essentials of life that God cares deeply about. And God knew that our greatest needs are not physical. And he constantly is trying to instruct our hearts around that truth. Our greatest needs are spiritual. And Jesus said unto them, verse 35 of, of John, he says, I am the bread of life. And he that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth in me shall never thirst. He said, I'm the bread of life. And he said it over and over and over again. I'm the bread of life. You, yes, you have physical needs. God, give me today my daily bread. Lord, the physical things and the spiritual things. I need you, Lord. I need to partake of you today. And that's the idea about communion. Of course, there's a whole thought there. I'm not going to take the time to go into. But Jesus needs to be invited into our lives every single day to meet the needs of our hungry souls, just as we pray for the needs of our hungry bodies. Then he says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtor. So much of Jesus' life and ministry was devoted to teaching and offering forgiveness. It's why he came. It's why he died. What was his goal? Well, to take sinful man and to woo them back to the Father. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the clean people of the day couldn't process that. Why are you publicans? Why are you sinners? Why, do you, why are you hanging out with the harlots? Well, because they need righteousness. They need reformation. They need repentance. And so I'm going to them because that's where I'm, I'm going to have my greatest impact. From the cross, he cried, Father, forgive them. Why would he say forgive them for killing and murdering him? And then here's the answer. Because they don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant. Fool, sin makes fools of us. And we are ignorant in our sin. And most of the time when we're sinning, we don't even know it. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We need Forgiveness, it's our greatest need from God, and it's his greatest gift to us. But too often we ask God for something, and we expect it from him, but then we're unwilling to give it to other people. And so this is the part that is difficult about the verse. Lord, forgive us as we forgive others. We all need forgiveness. We all need to extend forgiveness every single day. And more than any other thing, forgiveness is this. It's letting go. That hurt, that pain... That infraction, you stepped on my toes, you hurt my feelings, you looked at me crossways, you didn't acknowledge me, you know, what, you, know you, you spoke bad about me. Whatever that pain, that infraction, and maybe it's a much deeper hurt. And we, we, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. And again, for sake of time, I'm not going to go into all that, but it's this idea. I let go of it. It doesn't mean there's not consequences. 
It doesn't mean the Lord is going to still be the judge of that situation, that person. But in your heart, you have to let go. You have to forgive. God so loved the world that he forgave everybody. It doesn't mean everyone's going to heaven. There are consequences for sin. Forgiveness has to be accepted for reconciliation to take place. But he let go of the sin. And those that avail themselves to his righteousness through the blood of Christ are saved. But he let go and so too do we. Then he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this was what we looked at last week. And what exactly are we asking God to do for us? To not lead us into temptation? Would God lead us into temptation? And the emphasis there is not on temptation. The emphasis is on lead. Lord, lead us away from temptation is the idea. Lord, lead me away. That's temptation over there. Lord, I don't want to go that way. And so, Lord, I need you to lead me away from that into a different direction and left to our own devices and without asking God daily to lead us. We're going to lead ourselves straight into temptation. So, Lord, lead me away from temptation and then deliver us from evil. And again, the emphasis isn't on evil. It's on deliverance, like a shepherd and his sheep. God, I need you. The situations that I get into today that I'm going to be over my head and drowning and it's going to be sticky and I don't know what they are yet, Lord, but would you in advance deliver me? And then the verse doesn't just say me, but all throughout it's us. And so it's this prayer of Lord, lead me and, and lead us and Lord, deliver me and deliver us because those are the words that are used here. We are prayed to pray for one another and that is the instruction of, 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 of the text. Okay. After all that brief introduction, and it's, that's the core of the message, right? We get to this phrase tonight. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And amen, Brian. We'll get to that in a second because that's important what Brian just said. This part of the verse is the conclusion or the ending. And it is generally agreed that as Christ prayed these prayer, this, this, this prayer or this, this, this ending part of the, of the verses, um, that it was taken from David's prayer that he, read in first, that he prayed in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Of course, of course, Jesus was in the line of David, and so it makes sense that he would use this. And uh, uh, Paul, throw that up on the screen. I want, I want you to look at this with me. This is David's prayer, and it says, Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation, and David said, Blessed be the, thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Okay, and, and, and while I'm reading this, remember, this is a help to us as we pray. And so Jesus succinctly said this, or at least the author succinctly recorded what he said. My guess is there was a lot more to what Jesus was saying, but this is what we have recorded. And so as we pray, this, these types of verses, these types of prayers in the Old Testament, they help us learn how to pray. And so verse 11, thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. Thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. And, and, and this is David, and he is praising God. He is lifting up the name of God. He is, he is lifting up the Lord's name. And at the end of the prayer, this is what Jesus does. And on a daily basis, we err if we don't praise the name of God and lift him up and glorify him. And, and I'm going to get to this in a second. I'm getting ahead of my notes here. But, but we shape and we train our hearts 
around his praise and around who he is. And so reading these Old Testament prayers, you know, take note of them because they give us the words and they help us to articulate our hearts in praise to God. And that's what David did. It is what Jesus did. This is just an interesting side note to this verse in the Lord's Prayer. Um, and I, and I, almost, I, almost didn't, I almost didn't preach this phrase, to be transparent. I, I thought last week when I was studying, I looked ahead a little bit, I thought I could, I could preach that phrase. And, uh, and then I went to study this week, and so four of the books that I'm using to study, three of them don't even address it. And, and the reason is, is if a Bible translation isn't taken from the Textus Receptus, uh, this line at the end isn't present. And so if you look at an NIV, an ESV, NLT, some of these other translations, it's literally not there. So it just ends on deliver us from evil, end of prayer. And so I got into my study this week and I was like, oh, so there, no one really says anything, <laughs> anything about this verse. So we're, we're working with, uh, with, with light material here. And I, I believe the Texas Receptus is the right translation. I'm not going to go into all of that tonight. Um, and I think the translation that King James has taken from that. And so I, I feel confident in these words and that Jesus said and prayed them. And so the final few, few words here, though, they are like final ingredients of a really great recipe. And so here, here's the meat of the prayer. And so here's these final toppings that were thrown in at the very end. So to me, they feel a little bit fragmented. So I'm going to just deal with them as they're given over the next few minutes. We'll look at those, and then we'll tie it together at the end. Okay, so, so the, the first word here that the Lord uses is the word for. It's a little preposition, and it simply is this. It acknowledges who God is. The word for suggests the argument or the reason for this prayer. So, so why should I pray these things? Why should I pray this way? Why should I ask God for his blessing? Why should I ask God for his attention? Why should I ask God for his help? And the answer is simply this, because he is the king. And he has power. And it is through the vehicle of prayer that he reveals himself. And he interacts with us. And so he is saying, I want you to pray like this. Why? Because I'm king. And if you want to relate to me, this is one of the primary ways that you'll relate to me. And this is how I'm going to fellowship with you and interact with you. And I want you to come to me this way for thine in the prayer we pray. And, 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 and thy is there several times. Thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. Why so many thy and thines? In a short prayer, we've already addressed God as our Father. Well, again, Jesus, he is shaping and he is training our hearts around the will of the Father. And so as we come to him and we say, you know, Lord, for your kingdom to come, Lord, for your will to be done, thine is the kingdom. Again, as I recognize this towards the end of the prayer, it's a reminder to me as I start my day, as I go throughout my day, as you end your day tonight, that it's about him. And it's really easy for life to not become about him. Like we take center stage really quickly in life. And even in our prayers, if they were to be recorded and played back to us, it, it would be tempting to go, wow, that prayer is all about me. And, and again, that's not wrong. That's not sin. And I'm not saying that. And there's times and places for that. But prayer and life, the Christian life, is about God. And so it's thy will. And it's thy kingdom. And, and, and it's thine, Lord. And so we're, Jesus is literally shaping us here in our, in our thinking, in our thought life. 
His purposes are what are best for you. His purposes are what are best for other people. It is his kingdom, his will that is in our best interest, in his best interest, in others' best interest. And Jesus was constantly trying to help us remember that we're not supposed to be in the limelight, but that God is. And boy, we're at peace and life is happier and so much more is accomplished when God is the center, when he is in the limelight. And at the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples that the truly great among them, you want to be great? You want influence? You want to have significance in life? All the self-help books will tell you something different. And Jesus says, okay, let me demonstrate this for you. This is how you become great. He gets down on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet. And he says, if you want to be great, then you'll do the same thing. And Peter rebuffs him. No, Lord, not my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't get it. You don't understand. You need to do these things. And he made the point again. A few minutes later, he's in the, he's in the garden. And he's, he's in agony over what is coming in the next moments. And, and yet he ends his prayer with this. And, and we see it all throughout the Lord's Prayer. Not my will. Lord, if there's any way this cup passed from me, Lord, if there's any way you could take this away, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. See, Jesus' heart was shaped around the Father's will. And this is a reminder for us every day as we pray, Lord, thy kingdom, thy will. Lord, thine is the kingdom. And we need this reminder. And we are reminded once more, Lord, this is about you. And is your life today, is your life tomorrow, is your life this week going to be focused on yourself or God? And it is your, 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 your best happiness, your best joy, your best life, it is shaped around God. And, and the bestsellers on Amazon aren't going to say that, but Jesus did. So who are you going to believe? And then he says, is the kingdom, thine is the kingdom. And considering the statement, a man named author William Williamson, and then Duke University ethics professor Stanley Hauerhaus, they wrote this. This quote just is so clear to me and so poignant. They say, here come politics again. One more time as we end our attempt to pray as Jesus taught us. And they note that the Lord's prayer, particularly in this line, okay, quote, is a pledge of allegiance to a king and his kingdom. Now listen, that throws all our allegiances into crisis. <laughs> all our other allegiances. In other words, this, as we pray this prayer, it impacts how we view politics. Not just like what we're voting on or what we're doing or the issue of the day. How we view the whole system. How we view policy. Uh, it means that we re resolve the conflict of our allegiances by shaping them around God. It's a pledge of allegiance. Not to a nation. It's a pledge of allegiance daily. Not to a flag. It's a pledge of allegiance to the kingdom of God that has come into conflict with every single kingdom of earth that has ever existed or ever will exist, including ours. And it's saying, God, this cleans it up for me, thine's the kingdom, and my allegiance is to you, and I pledge allegiance to your kingdom and the establishment of it today. And that's what's superior, and that's what's priority. Then he says, and the power. There are people in positions of perceived power 
but they don't really have that much power. Okay, so um, the King of England, right? So, I, you know, my great-grandfather came to America and into Canada from England. So if you look up the fleets, you know, we're all from England. We're, we're British, you know, and uh, from the Manchester area. Um, and the King of England has got a cool title. Um, he's got a cool position, but he doesn't have a lot of power. God is not that way. He is the king with all the power. His name has power. The Greek word we translate as power is dynamis, from which we have our word dynamite. It's dynamite, boom, explosive. Think about, you know, John Martyrosian and Fall Festival, or the, you know, the, whatever that day, not Fall Festival Day, the July fireworks, you know, boom, power. But so much more than that. That's where we get the idea. That's the word, it's explosive. And we need his power, and he has it for overcoming bad and achieving good. And in John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. And then he says these incredible words, for without me, you're not connected to me, you're not praying to me on a daily basis, you're not interacting with the Lord, you get disconnected. He says, without me, you can do nothing. All the good you're striving for, all, all the things you're fighting for, all the things you want, all those, all, all, all your priorities, they're all out of line. Without me, you better be connected to me. Without me, you can't do nothing. He is the power source. He is the lifeline to your life. And no matter how hard we try, if we do whatever it is we are doing to do good, even good things, without him, we are lacking power. And his power is working in us. It's like dynamite. And it's inside us and it flows through us. And Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the, and there's the word, the power that worketh in us. Now think about that. We get a little hung up on the, all the other awesome things here in this verse, but there's a power that's working in us. And Jesus says, without me, no power. With me, power. Working in you, working through you. Power. And we need his power. And so to him goes the power. And, and then the glory. And so glory in the Greek, it's doxa. In, in the Hebrew, it's kavad. And the word appears 400 and over 480 times in Hebrew and Greek. And it's this idea of weight. <gasps> Reputation. Splendor. Impressiveness majesty. And again, we are naturally counting, countering this tendency within us that comes natural to us to get glory, and if you will, attention, weight to ourselves. We want the credit for good things. It's, it, that is our natural sin nature. We like recognition, praise, and applause. We want people to be impressed by us and our intellect and our humor. We want people to think highly of us. We want to brag. We like to brag. Um, some people, it's humble brag, right? But it's bragging nonetheless. But we're put off by people who glorify themselves. All of us are. A braggart walks in the room and you sense it, you know it. It's, it's off-putting. Those who crave the limelight, those who work hard to gain our attention and our, and, and our appreciation, it, it, it leaves a distaste in our mouth. What do we at our core admire? What did God plant within our hearts? 
Well, we admire selflessness. That stirs us. And we admire those who are self-effacing. We admire humility. In the moment that Jesus perhaps was glorified the most was the moment that he hung in shame, naked, bleeding, scourged and beaten. God the Father turned his back on him. But it was in that moment we see the glory of God. And, and, and that's the kind of glory that we're supposed to reflect in our lives. The humility, the, the self-effacing, the, the goodness to others. The, I don't have to be in the limelight. I can take one for the team. I'm going to, Lord, as your, as your glory shines down, I'm going to reflect it back to other people and, and to you. But what do we do sometimes? Well, we're like the... We're like an eclipse. We kind of get in front of this. We can, here comes the beam, and we kind of get in front of it. We like to stand in front of it. We like the attention. We like, instead of it reflecting, it just shines. And that's not how God designed us. And, and it will never make you happy. You can't ever have enough of it. It'll never scratch that itch you have. We're supposed to reflect it. We will be happier. A lot more good will happen when we allow God to get the glory in our lives. So we either obscure God's glory or we reflect it and we magnify it. In Psalms 115, the psalmist cried, not unto us. He says, not unto us, O Lord, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Or not me, but you. God, we want to glorify you and, and, and your name. And we we're meant to bring glory to God in the eyes of other people by how we live so that when someone else looks at us, it's not that's their show. That's why wow, they really care about people. And, and what they say is true. They must really love God in the way they treat their brothers and sisters in Christ. Number one, that's what the New Testament teaches. And number two, by how they interact with other people that are lost. Priorities, brothers and sisters in Christ, and lost people. How do you treat them? And, 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 and that's how we glorify God. And, and to Him be the glory we're meant to bring Him glory. And then these words, two separate words, for, ever. In the Greek, it's three words. Ice, tus, ion. Nothing lasts forever is a phrase we somewhat sometimes say cheekily when things break or don't work right. So in, in the house, you know, we have, um, don't judge me, okay? I, just... It, you know, clarify here. We, I bought some dodgeballs, and so me and the boys, the boys love to hit me as hard as they can. I enjoy reciprocating that um, as well, but there are some things that occasionally, or more than occasionally, break. Maybe some blinds or candles or vases. I don't know. Maybe hypothetically speaking, right? You could ask Elizabeth how many things we've broken uh, in recent years. Um, and so, well, nothing lasts forever. Like, it's okay. It's going to break someday anyway, Right? But there is one whose kingdom, whose power, actually do last forever. And this is the forever we're preparing for. And it's the one that we shape our hearts and minds around now. And Jesus said the kingdom of God is both here among us and it's yet to come. It's the paradise of God that's coming. It's a realm where His will is done and where death will no longer have a footprint, and we will have no taste of it. I, I, um, Paul told this verse in the screen, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 through 5, and John says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Okay, he's come. Now his kingdom is physically established, and it's going to come someday. 
and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death and sorrow or crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. We will be freed from guilt. And, and we're going to be freed from shame. And, and the grudges and the resentment that build up on our hearts, they're going to be released. And there's no, we're no longer led into temptation and we don't need to be delivered from evil because there's no evil, there's no darkness, there's no pain. It's forever. But that's not true of a lost soul. Lost souls will exist in hell endlessly. But for God's children, for those who call him Father, there is an eternity that awaits and the entire, listen, this is, this is so important to understanding the entirety of this Lord's Prayer and our own Christian life. The entire Christian life is built on the eternal. The prayers we pray, the life we build, it lasts forever. The eternal God, He is eternal and He is and will be our refuge. We rest on his eternal word. We have to have it. Without this, we have nothing. And it's eternal. And it's settled in heaven. And it's never going to fade away. We will share an eternal glory that far outweighs the present burdens we bear, Paul said in Corinthians. All the weight, all the pain, all the suffering we experience now, and the weight of glory just goes, ka-ching! Everything you feel, every frustration, every disappointment, every hurt, every, every, everything you feel, every injustice, the weight of glory outweighs it all. It's eternal. We're going to have an eternal body. You don't have to get Botox. You don't have to go to, the, to, to get a massage for your weary muscles. This is an eternal glorified body. We're going to have an eternal inheritance and it won't fade away. And it's not going to get divided up 12 ways. It's yours, and it's forever. But you're building it now. Forever we're going to be in God's house. We're going to receive crowns that last forever. We will be made perfect forever. 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul admonishes us, while we look not at the things which are seen. Don't get caught up in the things of this world and all the things that are so loud today. He said, but at the things that are not seen, the things that aren't heard. News from a far country, which C.S. Lewis would say. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, those things are eternal and they last forever. And so put your eggs in that basket. Live for that day. Pray these prayers around thy will and thy kingdom. And Lord, this is about you because it will matter someday. Through the vehicle of prayer, we gain victory over time. And we invest in eternity. And last word, and I'm not almost done. It's just the last word. I have 16 minutes. I'm watching the clock, all right? I know I took your time Sunday. Last word, amen. Amen. Means so be it. Or, or may it be so. And when we say amen, we are saying, let it be so. The word comes from the Hebrew. and means to lean on something strong or to steady yourself. And so the idea of the Old Testament writers when they would write this word was that of a pilgrim. Not Pilgrim's Progress, okay? This is a pilgrim on a, on a, on a far journey and he's traveling and, and he has a staff or a rod and he's using this and he's weary and he's leaning on this staff. He's putting his weight onto it. He's leaning on it. 
if that's the idea, the, the, the word picture for the word amen. There's this truth that's sung. It's this truth that's prayed. It's this truth that's preached. Amen. I rest on that. May that be so. This is steadfast and it's sure. And I put my weight upon that. The weakness that I might feel of this body, of this time, of this life. I put my weight on the amen. It's related to words like believe and trust and faithful and certain, reliable. And since Old Testament days through the New Testament, God's people have used the word amen as response of faith and confidence to prayers and sermons and testimonies and even songs. Deuteronomy chapter 27, at Ebal, Moses led the nation of Israel in accepting God's covenant. And they they responded by saying, amen. And so to every blessing, amen. If we don't do this, we're going to be cursed. Amen. We're leaning on this truth. This is established. It's reliable. Amen. And so we affirm that. Paul used amen five times when he wrote the book of Romans. John used it eight times in the book of Revelation. In the early church, it was expected that worshipers would be led by the Spirit to praise God and say amen when they understood the word that was being shared. Amen. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus' name is capital the, capital A, the, amen. He is reliable. We can lean on him. We can put all our weight on him. He is trustworthy. He is true. And we believe in him. Amen. He is the amen. And on the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. It's Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Amen in your life. Amen in my life. Amen in the church. All God's people say, amen. And we know what it means. And we believe it. And it's steadfast and it's true and it's reliable. And the disciples observed the difference that prayer made in Jesus' life. They watched him go away. They watched him come back. And then they watched what he did that day. Here he was alone. They observed him in prayer. They look at that and they say, Lord, teach us to pray like that. And what are they saying? Lord, we want to have the kind of impact, the kind of difference making, the kind of significance you have. And, and they watched it enough to understand there was a correlation between his prayer life and his work life. And they said, Lord, we want that kind of significance in our life, so teach us how to pray like you prayed. And he did. And here it is. And we are without excuse. And we are not ignorant. When Jesus prayed, things happened. There was a difference made. There was real power in his life. There was power and difference made in the lives of those with whom he had contact and touched and knew. If there's anything the Bible as a whole teaches us about prayer as a whole, it's that we have access to moment-by-moment power with God that's found through prayer. And those in Scripture who made the biggest impact, those whose lives we look at with potential envy, were people who prayed. And I'm going to tell you, there is no substitute for prayer in your life. It is essential. It is eternal. It is the air the Christian breathes, and it is air you must breathe. One time a day would be awesome 
to pray like this. Multiple times a day, twice a day, Daniel three times a day would be even better. But if you're not in the habit of it, let's start with one. Let's, 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 let's take this. Let's, let's, let's bookmark this page. Let's, let's go through this. Do your own study on this. And Okay, Lord, I'm going to work on my prayer life. Lord, teach me to pray like you prayed. And so he did. And so let's do it. Let's watch him make a difference in our lives. And not just yours, but ours, us, we, as we pray these things. James Montgomery wrote a poem. It's called Prayer is the Soul's Sincere Desire. He said, prayer is the soul's sincere desire, unuttered or expressed, the motion of a hidden fire that trembles in the breast. Prayer is the burden of a sigh, the falling of a tear, the upward glancing of an eye when none but God is near. Prayer is the simplest form of speech that infant lips can cry. Prayer the sublimest strains that reach the majesty on high. Prayer is the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's native air. His watchword at the gates of death, he enters heaven with prayer. O thou by whom we come to God, the life, the truth, the way, the path of prayer thyself hast trod. And Lord, teach us now how to pray.